I just want the truth to come out. I have nothing to gain or lose by me being interviewed and talking to people who want to talk to me about this case. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of our podcast, The Jen's Soaring Case, A New Verdict. In the depths of the justice system, where law and morality intersect, the verdict in a capital case is a monumental moment of crucial importance. It is not only the concluding chapter of a lengthy trial, but often a moment that changes lives and definitively seals a person's fate. Some listeners will still remember the picture of the chubby-cheeked Yen Soering in court with the large glasses and his closing words, I'm innocent. But what does my guest Ralph Gizruba think about that? Hello, Ralph. Welcome again today to the verdict in the Jen Soering case. Dear Daniela, I am happy to join you for this final episode. A verdict in a capital crime case is not merely a formal act, but also carries an immense responsibility. Absolutely. This is about crucial decisions about the life of a person. It is a question of whether he will spend the future in freedom because he could not be proven guilty, or whether he will be deprived of his freedom and spend an indefinite or specific period of time behind bars. In this respect, this decision must be made with all diligence, concentration, and objectivity. As a judge, you must carefully weigh the evidence and witness statements and, of course, apply the strictest standards. And there is a lot at stake, namely the life and freedom of the accused. But on the other hand, the victim's sense of justice and the public's trust in the justice system are at stake as well. This is correct. Only the latter does not have the same relevance as the question of the judge's conviction regarding the guilty verdict. The expectations of the victims and the expectations of the public are understandable, but must not influence a judge in his decision-making. Instead, it is always a question of whether I am fully convinced that the charges against the perpetrator or the accused have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. If I do have this conviction, I'm also fine with finding the defendant guilty. But if I have doubts that are not merely theoretical, then I have to acquit the defendant even if I subjectively feel that he might have done it after all. And that is an advantage of our due process of law in Germany. And I feel very comfortable with that. Let us start at the beginning. What is the classical definition of a guilty verdict? In a criminal trial, a guilty verdict means that the defendant is found guilty, for example, of murder. And in Germany, the imposition of consequences usually a sentence of imprisonment, is linked to the verdict. It states, therefore, the court sentences the defendant to life in prison. In the U.S., a 12-person jury deliberates and decides on the question of guilt while the judge announces the sentence. To what extent does a judge's verdict require not only legal and professional expertise, but also humanity and empathy? These are prerequisites for good jurisprudence. At the same time, a judge faces the challenge of applying criminal law to the realities of life and of grasping and defining the extent and context of the defendant's guilt. The big problem for us judges is that we often do not know the dark side of life from our own experience, but we have to decide about this dark side in other lives. Therefore, 
It's possible that we might have wrong ideas because we move in a different mental corridor than the one we actually have to deal with. But we can manage that because we have the assistance of so many different parties. We have the lay magistrates and two other professional judges. And in case of doubt, we are aware of this problem and try our best to be very diligent at this point. As I've been privileged to learn over the past nine episodes, the tragedy of a capital crime is often that there are seldom easy answers. Behind every crime are stories of trauma, despair, bad decisions, and often tragic entanglements. And while a guilty verdict can bring justice, it cannot turn back time or undo the harm. A verdict in a capital case should not impose out of anger or revenge, but out of a deep understanding of law and justice. Perhaps you will take me through the soaring trial up to the verdict on the basis of everything we have discussed. Certainly, our listeners are also very interested in your verdict against Yen soaring and how you arrived at it. Here, too, we have to differentiate between German and American law. First of all, I can say that in Germany, on the basis of the evidence that was introduced into the trial at that time, there would most likely not have been a guilty verdict against Jens Soering, and not because of proven innocence, but because of unproven guilt. I must repeat at this point that it is not the responsibility of the court to prove the innocence of the defendant, just as it is not the responsibility of the defendant to prove that he is innocent. It is enough for the court to have doubts about guilt. I believe that this is also the case in the United States. If Jens Soering had had a different defense in 1990, if certain evidence had been introduced in court or if it had been evaluated differently, this might have caused sufficient doubt among the jurors for at least one, two, or three of them to say, that's not good enough for me. And then the guilty verdict would not have been reached. In retrospect, we know what was not introduced or even possibly suppressed. The story about the luminol, the story about the wounds, and on and on. We have discussed all that in the previous episodes. I also believe that if this trial took place in Virginia today, it would not result in a conviction. The doubts that now exist under German law are initially relativized by saying that there was a confession. If there had not been this confession, Jens Soring would not have been imprisoned for 33 years and there wouldn't be this podcast. I think the confession is a force with an extreme pull factor in this trial, and invalidating this confession is ultimately relevant to having doubts about Jens Soring's guilt. Then you have to ask, how did the confession come about? And the first mistakes that occurred start precisely with that first confession to Ricky Gardner in London, England. Unlike the later confession, the first one wasn't recorded. Moreover, there is only the handwritten record of a person who was biased because he needed results. And that is already the first point that is very flawed. The second point that gives rise to doubts is that they stopped investigating that they simply assumed the confession to be true and drew up the indictment after five days without anything further happening at that point. 
This also led to the fact that certain findings that emerged only afterwards were not pursued and not introduced into the trial. One can even say that nothing happened between 1986 and 1990, and that is, of course, four years that could have been used in a meaningful way to find exculpatory evidence as well and to develop doubts about the confession. And then there is the trial itself, where Yen's soaring withdraws the confession while testifying in court. But why do you withdraw a confession if you committed the crime? Why do you recant after four years, knowing that you don't have to face the death penalty? And then the various omissions during the trial. For example, that Chuck Reed was not questioned, that Christine Kim, who created this alibi timeline immediately after the crime, was not questioned, that important aspects like the motive for the crime and the background and the personal development of Yen Soaring were dealt with insufficiently. Also, that the victim's background was investigated insufficiently. In particular, the nature of the relationship between the daughter and the parents. All in all, the result is that we have the confession. But we also do not have any forensic evidence at the crime scene that directly points to the Yen's soaring, who has meanwhile withdrawn his confession. And then the doubts arise to a degree where you say there might be a possibility, and not merely a theoretical one, that someone else committed the crime. And that person who could have done it would be Elizabeth Hasem. After all, she even stated at one point, if only briefly, that she did it. She might have had a motive, and she was known to be a chronic liar. She made contradictory statements, also with regard to Jens. This also casts doubt on the idea that he must have done it, leading to a situation where you might say, okay, an uneasy feeling remains. Of course you must ask yourself, why would anybody confess to such a horrible crime if he didn't do it? But everything that happened after that confession leaves room for doubts, which in turn lead to the defendant being acquitted. That is my brief conclusion at this point. And I am sure that my assessment reflects the overwhelming opinion of German criminal jurists. Thank you, Ralph, for your assessment. You say that Jens Söring would not have been convicted and sentenced today. But what usually happens after a guilty verdict if the defendant is convicted by the court? Well, in 80% of capital murder cases, the person concerned will appeal the verdict through his defense counsel. And in Germany, the Federal Court of Justice will then review whether the law was properly applied with regard to the guilty verdict. That takes about three to six months, sometimes longer. Very few appeals are successful. In 80% of cases, the verdict is upheld. After that, the sentence must be served in a penal institution. For murder, there is life imprisonment, which means serving at least 15 years. And after that, Depending on how one has behaved in the correctional system, there is the possibility of release on parole. The correctional system in Germany is geared to the rehabilitation of every prisoner. After 15 years, the correctional facility, the prosecutor's office, and an expert examine whether one can justify reintegrating the prisoner into society. That decision is based on the question of whether he will commit any more crimes. That is the classic and normal approach in Germany. In all the episodes, 
we also address the differences between the US and Germany. And I think that's an important point that you're making here, because in most US states, rehabilitation is not an objective. Instead, it's all about warehousing prisoners, many of whom have no realistic chance of ever being returned to society. They often do not work, have no prospects, and serve their life sentences according to the motto, life means life, until they die in prison. Earlier on, I mentioned that um, we have much longer sentences. We have very little rehabilitation. Uh, some people come, come out either traumatized by the prison experience uh, or they come out learning new criminal techniques instead of learning a way to make a living. But one thing that is probably different, and I haven't studied this, but I believe this to be true, the, the state of Virginia, and this is not just Virginia, it contracts out to private companies certain services in the, in the prison. One is principally um, food service. Well, um, and medical. Unless you have a really desperate situation, you don't get any, like UVA has a wonderful hospital. You have to be very, very ill if they catch it in time to send you to UVA. They have their own medical staff. Well, these companies that are supplying the medical staff and the food, which is, I hesitate to say, it's just awful. Jens can tell you what he had to eat. <laughs> um, those companies have one thing in mind, monetary profit, unfortunately. So um, they are not incentivized to have nutritious food or healthy food or very good medical care. Yes, that's one of the differences between the two legal systems. I'm sure there are also rehabilitation measures in American prisons, especially in the case of shorter prison sentences. Shorter sentences can be geared toward having people conditioned to such an extent that they do not commit any further crimes. That's probably the same in the United States as it is here in Germany. But here, some things are no longer constitutionally possible, such as imposing prison sentences of 40, 50, or 60 years. The next step after the guilty verdict is the incarceration of the convicted person. And in the case of Jens Söring, his release after 33 years has made the headlines and caused a stir. I spoke to journalist Sandy Hausman about the political background to why Jens Söring was only released on parole and without a declaration of innocence. I think here in Charlottesville, which is a stronghold of liberal Democrats, people were very happy. I think there was a lot of feeling here toward Jens, who had, after all, been a student at the University of Virginia and who increasingly appeared to be innocent of the crime that he was wrongly being held in Virginia prison. So I think in that circle, which is the circle that I tend to run in, people were happy to hear that he was being sent home to Germany. Uh, I have a feeling that in Bedford County, where he was tried and convicted, that that was not the sentiment. But I will say that the 
Northam administration tried very hard to appease the people of Bedford. They stressed that he was not being released because anyone thought he was innocent, but rather because he had served more than 30 years, because he had been a, a good prisoner, hadn't caused any problems. Um, we didn't want to pay for any more years of him being in Virginia prisons. And of course, I think the reason that Elizabeth was freed early was, again, to appease the voters and the power structure in Bedford, largely Republican and largely convinced of Yen's guilt. Ralph, what is your take on that? Want to learn more about Yen Suring and the Hazel murders? Chuck Reed, the leading investigator at the time, has compiled exclusive material for you and commented on it. Previously unpublished evidence, excerpts from trial files in Suring's diary, as well as explosive lab results. Get his report at www.suring-case.com. You can also find the link in the show notes. First of all, one must emphasize again and again that Jens Soaring was convicted as a double murderer and that his innocence was not established. The 12 members of the jury arrived at this decision independently and unanimously. A plausible explanation might be that they said, okay, we do have a final verdict, but there are valid reasons to release Jens Soaring from custody and to suspend the remainder of the two life sentences. The big issue for me is the politicization of this whole situation. In Germany, we have a clear separation between the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. In Germany, it is always the third branch of government, the judicial branch, that decides who is released on parole and without the influence of the other two. There are small exceptions, for example, in the case of pardons. For example, there is the so-called Christmas pardon. If a prison sentence were to expire in February, for example, then the attorney general can grant a pardon, so to speak, and declare that the prisoner may be released as early as December 24th. Otherwise, it is usually the third branch of government that decides independently of the attorney general, and that is different in the United States. If political interests play a role, then, in my humble opinion, it becomes difficult from the point of view of the rule of law, because politics should have nothing to do with justice. Justice involves the individual prisoner's right to freedom, so one must evaluate the situation independently, free of political interests. You know, what's surprising is that there isn't that much difference. I thought, coming from a big city like Chicago, that surely the facts would prevail in this case and that he would be pardoned. But what I've discovered, and I think this would happen in other parts of the country as well, is that in 1988, something very important happened in American politics. Michael Dukakis, a Democrat from Massachusetts, was running for president against the senior George Bush. And Bush supporters produced a commercial featuring a guy named Willie Horton. Willie Horton was a convicted murderer. And as was the case in many states, he was allowed to go home occasionally on weekends to see his family because he behaved well in prison. It was an incentive that was offered to prisoners who didn't cause trouble behind bars. Unfortunately, when he was out on his weekend pass, he committed a violent crime. And so he became the sub subject of this ad uh, against Michael Dukakis. And that 
really, I think political scientists agree, cost him the election. That suddenly he was branded as being soft on crime, whereas George Bush was being tough on criminals, and the public was persuaded. And I think you often see this today, that Republican candidates will play on Americans' fear of violent crime, and the facts be damned, people want vengeance, they want safety and security for their family. So I think here in Virginia, any politician who is ambitious, planning to go on to another career in politics, will not do anything for someone who's been convicted of a crime. It just, there's no benefit to them. And this was especially true for Bob McDonnell, who, a Republican who aspired to be president. He was the one who decided Jens should not go back to Germany, even though Tim Kaine was willing to send him back. And then came Terry McAuliffe, who also would have liked to be president, and he did not want to risk his political career for someone who had, after all, been convicted in a court of law for murder. Um, I think it's also important to note that in Virginia, our governors can only serve one term, just four years. So they have to be thinking about their future and running for some other office if they want to stay in politics. And so it's especially important that they not make any mistakes during those four years that could be used against them in, a, say, a presidential race. The third point I would make is that Virginia is a purple state. We are roughly half Democrat, half Republican, or probably more like 40% Democrat, 40% Republican, and 20% Independent. So if you want to win election in this state, you need to appeal to the other side. And so it's incumbent on Democrats to not appear to be too favorable to people who are in prison. It just it makes for a very dangerous political stand if you were to do that. So this is why I think McAuliffe was unwilling to release Jens. Now, I will say that um, I always thought Ralph Northam would be the one. It took him a long time. But the reason I thought that is that Ralph Northam is a doctor. He's a pediatric neurologist, and he was going right back to medicine when he finished being governor of Virginia. So he had less to lose in freeing Jens. And of course, during his four years in office, there was growing evidence that Jens was not the killer. Dear Ralph, thank you for providing us with such a deep insight into the profession and role of a judge, and for taking a close look at the Jens Soaring case for us and arriving at a verdict. My pleasure. Thank you. The Jens Soaring case, a brutal double murder. More than 10,000 pages of trial files, appeals in two reviewing judicial authorities, challenges on constitutional grounds in four reviewing judicial authorities, 14 applications for parole, two applications for a declaration of innocence, 12,262 days in an American prison, and countless unanswered questions. Would he be convicted if the trial were held today, knowing what we know now about all the evidence? There's no way. It's, it would be absolutely impossible. But really, two reasons. One, there are too many holes in the prosecution's case. For example, during his trial, the prosecution argued very strongly to the jury that the typo blood that was found at the scene, this was not DNA, this is just blood typing, that the typo blood had to be Yen's because Yen's has typo blood. 
Well, we now know from the DNA analysis of the blood spatter evidence from the crime scene that none of that type O blood is Jens's. It belongs to two other unidentified males, not Jens. So, and there are other reasons why the prosecution's case would fall apart. But then there's compelling evidence of Jens's innocence. There's, there's the DNA evidence that we have from Dr. McClintock and his colleague and uh, other evidence of innocence that would be very persuasive. He would never be convicted today. It would be almost impossible. I think if this, if he were tried today, knowing all that we know now, all of the uh, information that has come out over the years, I believe there is no way in the world that he would be convicted. Absolutely, I think that they, they will have an interest that our, it wasn't a fair trial. And even though uh, it was televised and, and many people watched it uh, as it was televised, they didn't understand. They didn't understand what was going on. And if you take the information that we know now and you apply it to what you see in the videotapes and the courtroom tapes of Yin's trial and Elizabeth's plea hearing, you can very, very accurately see that there was clearly bias. There was clearly information presented that, that convicted him, that shouldn't have convicted him and would not convict him today. If you've been convicted, then prove to us who did it. And if you can't, we're not gonna give you a pardon. So from a criminal standpoint, if this went back to trial, Yen Suring, could I prove who did it? I don't think I could, but I could defend Yen Suring to the point it would be no way he'd be convicted. So by a legal standard, he would not be considered a murderer. And when people call him a murderer today, they're only using the legal standard that that jury convicted him. But they don't understand they convicted him on false evidence and there was plenty of exculpatory evidence that was held back that could have offered a defense for him. This case has all the earmarkings of the prosecutor sitting down with whoever and saying, okay, here's what we're gonna use and here's what we're not gonna use. Because we, we know that they're both involved in varying degrees. So we don't have to worry about this, okay? Uh, our exculpatory evidence, hey, no, no, we just, just take the evidence that we will prove our point and go forward with it. This was the 10th episode of our podcast series, The Case Against Jens Soaring, A New Verdict. The indictment, a verdict, and still many unanswered questions. Judge Ralph Giesrube has delivered his verdict on the Soaring case. Thank you for listening. You're Daniela Hillers. <laughs>